When it comes to the monsters that haunt our dreams and the silver screen, there are a few that hold a candle to the vampire. But Bram Stoker's Dracula, to the sparkling studs of twilight, vampires hold a special place in the hearts of many as being both desired and feared. The problem is, I usually think of vampires as faraway creatures that lurk through the ruins of Europe and Asia, in much older cities and countries than America is. After all, Transylvania has often served as the backdrop for many vampire stories. But the truth is that these lurkers in the night are a lot closer to home than you may think. So grab your garlic and your crucifixes and join me as we sink our teeth into the lore of vampires of the United States. I'm Scott Parrish and you're listening to Dying to Eat, the podcast that dwells into the different cultures and nations of the world throughout time while exploring different attitudes about death and food. If you love history, good eating, and fascinating stories, then I've got a great show in store for you. So make sure to stick around to see what's cooking this week. Also, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, TheTailoredHemp.com. Science Daily says, while more work, including the clinical trials, has to be done to determine optimal dosage and timing, before CBD can become a treatment for COVID-19, researchers at the Dental College of Georgia and Medical College of Georgia have early evidence that it could help patients showing signs of respiratory distress avoid extreme interventions like mechanical ventilation, as well as death from acute respiratory distress syndrome. Interesting, isn't it? So, go to the best when you need your CBD questions answered and your needs. So. Go to the best with your CBD questions and needs, thetailoredhemp.com. Now on with the show. Let's be honest. The lore behind vampires is so long and extensive, it would take me five hours to cover it all. Vampires are one of those creatures that you can find lore in all facets of culture and time. The story changes depending on who's telling it and what part of the world you're, you happen to find yourself in. Some of them look exactly like we have been told that they should, and others look completely alien. But there's always the common factor that ties them all together. That thirst for blood. I'm not going through all the versions of the vampire. Nobody has time for that, especially not me. So let's focus on a smaller and lesser known chapter of the vampire saga. This is after the vampire scare of 18th century Europe. Plague had devastated the continent, claiming many lives, and people were quick to use the vampire as a scapegoat for their plight. Across the seas, America was still a young country, hardly concerned with the things that go bump in the night. One of the earliest accounts of vampires in colonial America occurred in 1732. In Boston, 1775, two American periodicals picked up a story that was initially reported in March 1732 about a man named Arnold Paul who was tormented by vampires. Becoming a vampire himself was what finally happened after his death, according to the story. His body was found to be, let's say, too well preserved in the grave, and when his neighbors drove a stake through his heart, he was said to have let out a horrid groan. This was what would later be known as the Vampire Panic, a series of small, isolated incidents in the New England area of the U.S. Arnold Paul may have been the earliest recorded vampire in America, 
But Arnold Paul didn't actually live in America. He lived in Hungary. And his story only came, out, came to America nearly 40 years after his death. He's not actually an American vampire, unlike the character of the story we're about to share. Our story starts in 1883. In the state of Rhode Island, a small family lived on a farm outside of Exeter, three children and their parents. George and Mary Brown were farmers, and they worked the land with their children. Their children were Mary, Oliver, Edwin, and Mercy. Mercy had just been born that year. I can't imagine life was too exciting for the family. You know, the men probably worked in the field while the women tended the animals and did the housework. It's the story of many from that time. But tragedy was coming to the Brown family, and they just were not ready for it. Like Europe, with the Black Plague, America had its own fair share of disease outbreaks. Because of the hygiene standards at the time, when one family member got sick, everyone got sick. Thanks to advances in modern medicine and a deeper understanding for how diseases work, that's no longer the case. But for the Brown family, that would be their undoing. In 1886, Mary Brown fell ill with consumption. It didn't take long for the disease to claim her life, but not before her daughter, Mary Olive, had also come down with the sickness. Consumption. It's a disease today we know as tuberculosis. It was called such because of the way that the sickness would consume entire families in a short period of time. And that's exactly what happened to the Brown family. Mary Olive followed her mother to the grave shortly, and by then both Mercy and her brother Edwin were sick. George, he's the dad, and the grieving widow at this point, had somehow remained unaffected during this whole ordeal and now had a difficult choice to make. He knew that there were treatment centers in Colorado Springs, Colorado, that could help consumption, the dry air and the high altitude acting like a miracle cure. But he could only send one child to, to the treatment center. Naturally, with Edwin being his son and heir to the farm and the estate, George picked Edwin's things and sent him away. Unfortunately for Mercy, she wouldn't live long enough to see her brother's return. In 1892, Mercy Brown passed away. She was only 19 years old. I can only imagine what George must have been thinking. How odd it was that this blight seemed to be targeting his family specifically. With the superstitions and the paranoias of that time, it wouldn't be too long before, or it wouldn't be too much of a jump for George to think that maybe, you know, just maybe, this was more than a typical disease. Maybe somebody was behind it, killing his family off one by one. So when Edwin returned from Colorado later in 1892, he was feeling much better and much stronger. George probably thought that his family suffering had finally ended, but that just wasn't the case. Edwin Phil fell ill once again, and it was even worse than the first time. And I'm really sure that this is what confirmed George's superstitions that something weird was going on. He was getting desperate, so with no other option, he turned to the help of his neighbors. That was when he heard the folks tell. As far as I could find, the superstition claims that, by some unexplained and unreasonable way, in some part of the deceased relative's body lives flesh and blood and might be found, 
which is supposed to feed on the living who are in feeble health. <laughs> that's a mouthful. Basically, there's something in your body that's feeding off of it and killing you a little bit at a time. Well, that sounds like a disease to me, but for these guys, they didn't have the education that we do. So basically, the myth claims that when the members of the same family waste away from consumption, it might be because one of the deceased had become undead and is draining the life force from their living relatives. The only way to find out was to exhume the bodies and examine them for signs of life. And that's exactly what George did. With George's extremely reluctant blessing, a couple of the community members and a town mortician set out to find more answers. So on the morning of March 17th in 1892, the bodies of George's wife and two daughters were dug up and examined. His wife and his eldest daughter's bodies showed the usual signs of decay and rot that you'd expect to find on a body that had been buried for almost 10 years. But Mercy, who had only been buried for nine weeks at that time, still looked like she had died just the day before. This wasn't enough to confirm suspicions of the townsfolk, though, so they took it a step further. They cut Mercy open, and when they examined her, her heart and her liver were both found to have fresh red blood. Now, you're probably thinking, blood in the heart. <laughs> That's where it's supposed to be, right? Well, that is right. But the people of Exeter at the end of the 19th century didn't know what we know today. I think that they were looking for any evidence that would confirm their suspicions. And I also think that when people go looking for a monster, they tend to find it. So, Mercy Brown was confirmed to be a vampire and was believed to be feeding off the life force of her brother and making him sick. Rather than driving a wooden stake through her heart, both her heart and liver were burned and her body was reburied. But it doesn't end there. The ashes of her organs were then collected and mixed with water to make a tonic. That tonic was given to her brother, Edwin. It was the hope that if Edwin consumed some of Mercy's life force, he might be cured. This is where the superstition failed. Edwin died two months after taking the tonic. We know today that the reason for Mercy's decay rate, or lack thereof, I guess, was due to the fact that she had been buried in, a in the cold during the winter months early in the year. We know that the reason George remained unaffected during the whole ordeal was because, as a farmer, he likely stayed away from his family to plow and work the fields. But it's also important to know that digging up bodies because of vampire scares was not uncommon in New England area at this time. Mercy Brown's case is a special exception, though since basically the entire town of Exeter, Rhode Island, had been swept up in hysteria, to this day, Mercy Brown's grave can be visited and is a popular tourist attraction for fans of the macabre. She's left quite the legacy, and even today, most people will refer to Mercy Brown as America's first vampire. There's some good trivia knowledge for you there. In reality, Mercy was actually the last victim of a hundred-year-long panic that swept through many small communities in America. But as the Arnold Paul story, there came a little follow-up or discussion afterwards. Although New England is known for its belief in the supernatural, you know, if you think about the Salem witch trial hunts and, you know, the citations like that, the 
the vampire panic was substantially different from the witch hunts. Keep in mind that this whole ordeal took place nearly 200 years after the Salem, after the Salem witch trials. While the witch hunts were politically motivated and sought to destabilize women's agency, especially that of women of color, the vampire panics stem from a fundamental misunderstanding of disease and causation. Some historians believe that the rituals used against vampires were brought to America by German doctors in the, during the American Revolution. German vampires, or Noxir Sir, remained in their graves and affected people through what was called sympathetic magic. These rituals melded with Romanian traditions which focused on the heart of the vampire and often recommended cutting the heart out, burning it to ashes, and giving the ashes to the sick person or sick people. It also didn't help that the symptoms of tuberculosis also happen to coincide with vampire qualities. Those are like sunken eyes and an ashen appearance. People with consumption were light-sensitive and always stayed indoors where they would eventually die a slow death, seeming to waste away. Kind of sounds like a vampire, I think. What about you? This all follows a particular pattern that was present in both America and Europe at the time. Eventually, stories like these would spread across countries, and one of these stories ended up in the hands of an obscure Irish writer and theater manager named Bram Stoker. The storyline of Stoker's 1897 novel, Dracula, about a Transylvanian count in his invasion of English virtue would be almost entirely original. However, the key attributes of vampires itself would draw directly from Slavic folklore, particularly where there was an overlap with European witchcraft. While Brahms' Dracula was an elegant and seductive aristocrat, the Slavic vampires were typically rural villagers that had become possessed. In appearance and mannerism, they would have been shared more in common with Max Schreck's animalistic performance in the German silent classic Nosferatu than with Bela Lugosi's theatrical mannerisms of the Hungarian count. However, the depiction of the vampire as a savage beast of prey, the infection of new vampires through bites or contaminated blood, their ability to transform into specific animal familiars, mostly wolves and bats, and the method of dispatching the undead by murdering them in their coffins while they slept would be borrowed directly from Slavic folklore. All of this folklore came over with the Slavic immigrants that settled in the New England area beginning in the 17th century. Tuberculosis wasn't the only disease that could stir a community into a frenzy either. Rabies had long been known as an inspiration for vampiric symptoms. Think about it. Rabies is usually transmitted through an infected saliva when someone gets bit and those that get infected with rabies are also sensitive to light. Not to mention the manic beast-like behaviors that are so notorious for folks in late-stage rabies. As a farmer living in a small town in rural America with no knowledge of diseases or transmission, it would be terrifying come face to face with rabies. There were many reasons for people to believe that vampires had risen from the dead and were stealing the life force of their friends and their family. 
According to Michael Bell, who specializes in Rhode Island folklore, evidence for about 80 exhumations related to vampire panics had been found dating as far back as the 1700s and as far west as Minnesota. Bell also believes that there were hundreds more of cases that haven't been discovered. In fact, there are still unmarked graves being discovered today to show evidence of grotesque tampering that may have been related to vampires. Here's one example. In 1990, police in Griswold, Connecticut, were called to the scene of what was suspected to be a mass burial. They soon realized it was a fairly typical 19th century family burial and notified the state archaeologist, uh, Nick Bellatoni. While supervising the exhumations, Bellatoni was struck by what came to be known as burial number four. Unlike the other simple graves, this one had heavy flat rocks with red painted coffins underneath. The skeleton they found inside was an individual they called J.B. He had been beheaded and his bones had been completely rearranged with many of the ribs deliberately broken. When Bell and Tony consulted with colleagues about this mystery, one of them asked, Have you ever heard of the Jewett City Vampires? It turned out that in 1854, townspeople in the neighboring Connecticut village exhumed several corpses that they suspected were vampires that had risen from their graves to kill the living. Newspapers published lurid stories about the horrible suspicion, excuse me, the horrible, horrible superstition. <laughs> Even English, I can't talk anything but Southern. So Henry David Thoreau mentioned such an exhumation in his journal, writing that the savage in man is never quite eradicated. Perhaps the Griswold grave was desecrated for the same reason. The particulars of the vampire exhumations, though, vary widely. In many cases, only family and neighbors participated, but sometimes town fathers voted on the matter, or medical doctors and clergymen gave their blessings or even pitched in. Some communities in Maine and Plymouth, Massachusetts, opted to simply flip the exhumed vampire face down in the grave and leave it at that. <laughs> I don't know, maybe he just couldn't find his way out, right? In Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Vermont, they frequently burn the dead person's heart, sometimes inhaling the smoke as a cure. Often these rituals were clandestine, lantern-lit affairs, but particularly in Vermont, they could be quite public, and sometimes they even celebrated them. One vampire heart was reported torched on Wood at, in Woodstock, Vermont, in 1830, in Manchester, hundreds of people flocked to the 1793 heart-burning ceremony at a blacksmith's forge. In some areas, particularly those areas with a heavy Polish population, pre preventative measures were taken before the body was even buried and then placed in what was called a vampire grave. You may have seen those pictures of graves in England that look like they have some sort of cage welded over the tops of them. For a long time, these graves were thought to be vampire graves, but in actuality, these, cage, these cages over the graves were meant to keep the grave robbers out rather than keep the vampires in. I don't know. I don't think I'd want to be a grave robber if there were some vampires around, or at least I believe that there were some vampires around. 
So the real vampire graves didn't need cages because people who prepared them made absolutely sure the bodies buried there were not able to get back out. The first step was always to decapitate the body and place the head between the legs. If for some reason the head could not be decapitated, then a large rock was pushed into the mouth of the body, sometimes breaking the jaw in this medieval form of muzzle to prevent biting. The legs were then broken, and you know, just in case so they didn't get up and chase you down. There were others recorded cases of bodies being pinned to their coffins with metal or wooden stakes driven through their chest. It is amazing what lengths people from the past would go through in order to make sure their dead stayed dead in order to protect the living. I'm sure that these community members didn't want to defile their friends and loved ones like this, but fear can be a powerful motivator. If it meant keeping your remaining family and your friends alive, then taking these extra measures, no matter how grim, probably seemed worth it. Kind of makes you happy to be living in the age of understanding that we do, doesn't it? I don't know, though. I think I know a couple of people that believe in vampires. I'm going to have to have a conversation with them. Vampires are just creatures on the silver screen to both mystify and terrify us. And tuberculosis is not the rampaging disease that it once was. Not to mention we also have better food than they did back then, so let's get to my favorite part of the show. Now, I really had a tough time deciding what recipe to share with you. Do I go back to 18th century on you? Do I make blood sausage? Do I go for gore? Well, being a huge fan of Halloween, I decided to go with one of my favorite dishes that is blood red and add a twist to it for dramatic effect. There are a few steps, though in the end, I think you'll be glad you went through the trouble. This is like a faux Dora White. It's perfect for spicy food and for vampire enthusiasts. So, for the sauce, you will need thinly sliced medium sweet onion, two 16-ounce cans of stewed tomatoes, half a cup of beef broth, three cloves of minced garlic, one tablespoon of honey, two teaspoons of salt, two teaspoons of black pepper, olive oil, and one tablespoon of berberet. Berberet, excuse me. Now, I know that there are a bunch of you asking what in the heck I'm talking about. Animals wearing hats? Nope. Bear Beret is a fairly common Ethiopian spice mix. McCormick's even sells it, so there's a fair chance that you're going to find it in your grocer's spice aisle. It's spelled B-E-R-B-E-R-E. I keep it on my shelf all the time because I like spicy. So add a tablespoon of oil to your skillet over medium heat. Cook the onions, one tablespoon of the salt, and garlic until the onion just begins to turn translucent. Add the tomatoes and cook for two minutes. Stir in the remaining ingredients and turn the heat up to high. Keep in mind that the berberet will add some heat, especially after this dish sits around for a while. So if you want less spicy, add less. When the mixture begins to boil, turn it to low and let it simmer for about 30 minutes. If your dish seems like it needs a little more liquid, then add a little bit more beef broth. I'd say add a quarter cup at a time so that you don't overdo it. Stir occasionally to prevent it from burning. For the fingers, 
You're going to need five unbroken almond slivers, five uncooked chicken fingers, one cup of whole milk, one cup of breadcrumbs, half a cup of fresh shredded Parmesan or some similar cheese, some salt and some pepper. You're going to need enough olive oil or peanut oil to submerge the chicken fingers in the pot. So first, pour the milk in a bowl and just throw your, your chicken fingers in there. Just let them soak. Combine the cheese and the bread crumbles with the salt and the pepper uh, in a bowl by itself. And over medium heat, heat the oil until you can see swirls on the bottom of the pot. Systematically remove each chicken finger from the milk and coat it heavily in the breading mixture. And cook in the hot oil for, oh, I don't know, about three or four minutes each or until it's just completely cooked through. Don't overcrowd your oil pot. Remove the cooked chicken fingers and place them on a paper towel to drain while you cook the rest of them. Now, put your sauce in a bowl and prop the chicken fingers so that they look they're protruding from the sauce. Place the almond slivers on the end of each finger so it looks like a fingernail. Now you can just dig in and enjoy the good eats. If you want to see a picture, then go on Dying to Eat Podcast Instagram and you can get a visual. I've been your host, Scott Parrish, and I'd like to thank you for listening to Dying to Eat. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Also, I want to welcome our newest team member, Nellie Grace. She is an incredible writer-researcher, and I'm very grateful to have her on the show. In fact, I don't really think I could do it without her. This show is made possible by listeners like you. I'd like to give a special shout-out to Joe Jackson, Mickey Utley, and Judy Henson that follow us all on Dying to Eat Podcast on Facebook. Your support drives the show, and we enjoy hearing from you. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Dying to Eat Podcast. Let us know what topics you'd like to hear. Find future and past episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to drop us a like, a five-star rating, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button to stay updated on all the latest episodes. And until next time, stay lively.